Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. Welcome you here. I welcome our visitors with us this morning. Glad to have you here, too. And hope you uh, can worship the Lord with us. My apologies. Nothing big is coming. This has nothing to do with anything I'm going to speak on, unfortunately. My apologies, Mark. Um, apparently, Ellis had something big going on this week. So, As I... Uh, contemplated what to uh, share on this morning. My mind was going a certain direction and um, something I'd been mulling over for a while. And then um, it struck me that um, for the Sensenate family here this morning, this is a a momentous service, I guess. Um, it uh, It is the last time they will be here as regulars, and the next time they show up, I guess technically they're visitors, I guess. So that kind of uh, hit me, and um, then I recalled a conversation that uh, Micah and I had last week, and I I don't know where you are, Micah, hopefully you don't mind if I share this, but uh, he mentioned that, that, you know, as he's he's thinking about Dan's and and Ryan's moving here shortly, that it it hit him how how much these people mean to him, Uh, because, you know, when when someone's just there all the time and you kind of... um, you know, they, they don't mean as much to you as suddenly when you realize that, you know what, these people aren't going to be here much, with us much longer, and, and so it takes a little bit of a different, uh, you have a different feeling about it. And I guess that's really a good thing. Um, I guess sad the day if uh, Micah had to say, Dan's are going good riddance, you know, I'm really happy, Things, life's going to be better now, that would be kind of a sad day. As I uh, reflected on the last 10 days or so of my life, I have either experienced or been a quiet observer of uh, somewhat of a series of goodbyes, as it were. Um, Thursday a week ago, I attended the funeral of a neighbor that um, has lived in the neighborhood much longer than I, was born and raised and died in the neighborhood, one of the big Martins. And um, so we, we were there, and and I have to concur that um, no matter whose funeral I attend, it, I always somewhat understand what Solomon means when he says, you know, it's really better to go to the house of mourning than the house of, the house of mirth because it really puts life in perspective. Um, and, and it did that for me again. It, it kind of it, it put life in perspective. And then um, I don't know this person real well, but my, my daughters knew her a bit better the uh, young mother here in, in the area that was killed in a tragic automobile accident, um, I think married a year and had a, had a one-month-old baby and, and so on. Um, very sad. Um, and we almost question well, why would that have had to happen. And in our humanness, we can't, we can't come up with a good reason. But um, it did happen, and it was a... Uh, it was, like I say, it was somewhat of a silent observer of that. My daughter left this week. My oldest daughter left for Honduras for a month, at least, and um, helping my in-laws move uh, back to the United States here in a few weeks. And so, you know, you kind of look at her a little bit more the last day and say, well, I won't see this person for the next month, and I hope she gets back safely, and, and we trust that that will be the case. Graduation parties, I've uh, been to a few of them the last while, and, and that also is 
makes a person think, you know, this is kind of an ending of an era for somebody. And uh, not that it matters to many of you, but our, our raccoon died. So we no longer have a raccoon. And uh, that was to the sadness of some and to the delight of others. And um, <laughs> I was a little bit, trep- had a little trepidation how the sweet corn would fare with a full-grown raccoon around, but he passed away Thursday, so we don't have to worry about that. So uh, anyway, that, uh, that kind of sums up my uh, last 10 days. It's been kind of a series of uh, unwelcome and some welcome goodbyes, I guess. And of course, the thought that, that Dan's uh, will be leaving here uh, this week also somewhat made me, made me think of this. So, you know, as I, as I contemplated my emotions, my mixed emotions of these different events, um, you know, I had to think of, you know, the bottom line is life is chucked full of um, a long series of goodbyes, really. Um, that's that's just part of life. Um, uh, these things happen, and um, some of them are much more final. Others are much more pronounced. I mean, bands are here this Sunday; they won't be here next Sunday. Um, Larry was my neighbor uh, uh, ten days ago. He no longer is. Others, when you think of kind of how life, kind of the ebb and flow of life, some some eras just sort of come to an end silently, quietly, and you don't really even think about it till uh, you're kind of down the road a ways, and you're like, wow, um, you know what? This particular thing that used to be really common in my life is no longer a part of my life. Um, you know, it, we were kind of talking about it as a family here the other night, that it won't be just real soon, and we won't have any children in summer Bible school anymore. I know it's a few years yet, but it's it's coming and um, you know it seems like summer Bible school here has just been a part of my life for a long long time but that era is going to close uh, before it's too long for us you know I had to think of um, my um, school friends uh, and when I was in school there was five of us boys there in my grade and we kind of took our departure one at a time and I really cannot remember any of those specifically. But I haven't seen any of those men now. Um, Well, one of them came to visit me here a few years ago, but many of them I have not seen for decades. And um, somehow we just kind of, you know, the the goodbye was said and you didn't think of it until suddenly you think, you know, I wonder what those people are doing. Turn with me to um, uh, 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians 13. I would like to, um, I've, I've titled this, this message this morning, Living a Life That is Worthy of an Honorable Farewell. I'm going to read the, the final verses here in 2 Corinthians 13, um, 11 to 14. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. This week I was uh, 
I was reading um, in my devotions in First Chronicles where it talks about David's death. And here's the commentary that the writer gives on David's death. He said, he died a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor. And that's somewhat why I titled this what I did. How can we live a life that when it's our time to say goodbye, however that may come, and it will come for all of us one way or the other, that we have an honorable discharge? You know, the military talks about that. Maybe that's not a good term for us. But you're either discharged honorably or dishonorably. And uh, I would like to talk about this morning how we can have an honorable farewell. To kind of get the context here, Paul had interacted a lot with this church at Corinth. Uh, We have two letters in our Bibles that he wrote to to the Corinthian church, but if if you read carefully, he wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth. He visited there a few times, and if you read his letters, they end up being, I think, outside of maybe Romans. Romans might beat 1 Corinthians, if you counted the words, it would be close. But they're lengthy letters. If you read Ephesians, you know, that's six chapters, kind of succinct, you Galatians, what on it. But 1 and 2 Corinthians, these are big letters. I mean, he had a lot to say. He had defended the faith and his role as an apostle to these people, and he had pointedly rebuked them. And he had also commended them and encouraged them. And I believe whenever Paul said in, in uh, chapter 11 here of 2 Corinthians, he said, that uh, one of the things that weighs him down is the care of all the churches. I think, now this is my imagination, but I think in the back of his mind he's thinking, if only you knew. This church here at Corinth has been really, it's been a lot of work. Uh, you guys are a pretty high-maintenance congregation if you knew everything. Now maybe he didn't think that, but I, a man has to wonder reading, reading through the first and second Corinthians. But finally, after this second letter here that we have in our Bibles. He goes, finally, brothers, I'm going to say goodbye. And here is five or six things that I want you to think about. This is, this is the summary of these two books in a few quick phrases. And um, so I would like to borrow from Paul's admonition here to this Corinthian church. And I'd like for us to contemplate this. Um, this maybe doesn't have anything to do with the Sensenick family moving in particular, but, uh, you know, another thing that entered my mind, we know, uh, we're pretty sure anyway, unless something happens in this week that we can't see, that next week Dan's won't be here. But what we don't think about probably as much as we should is there is at least a possibility that somebody else could be missing in these pews too. Um, it just could. And this tragic accident in the neighborhood makes one realize that. And so... We need to live our lives all the time in a way that when we say goodbye, whether planned or unplanned, that it is an honorable farewell. So let's get started. Five short-pointed instructions that we can kind of build our lives on that will do us well when it's time to say goodbye. So the first thing I, I noticed here is he said, finally, brother. He calls this these people at this church brothers. And you say, well, what's, what's, the, um, what's, what's um, significant about that? Well, if you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, you will quickly find that these people at Corinth had treated 
Paul in a very unbrotherly way, if you will. Some had decided that they wouldn't relate to Paul. They were going to be Apollos' man or Cephas' man. And some said, uh, we'll, we'll, just be, we'll just be Jesus' people. That's, that's what we'll be. None of you people, you know, you can go take a hike. We'll, we'll just follow Jesus. Um, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, they had accused Paul of being fickle and unreliable when he had, his plans had changed and he couldn't make it to Corinth. They got all uptight about that and started chucking accusations at him. A little later in chapter 1, they accused him of being an authoritarian leader. In chapter 10, they, they accused him of being a coward. And in uh, chapter 13 here in uh, verse 3, they, uh, they questioned whether he was authentically actually teaching Christ's words. And through the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul sent, spends a considerable amount of time simply walking this church through why uh, kind of defending himself. And that's a very tacky, very tacky place to find oneself. But that's what he did. <clears throat> very tedious, but he, he kind of kindly tries to walk them through why their accusations and their, and their um, uh, yeah, their accusations of him were somewhat ungrounded. And at the end, he says, brothers, finally brothers. And, and that strikes me. I think he was sincerely calling those those people brothers here, even though they had not treated him very nicely. So, what is our life lesson here? As we go through life, let's try to be people that view others as brothers. Brothers love and forgive. Brothers try not to be quick to pass judgment. Brothers are candid. Brothers want to help. And even when people aren't very brotherly, they treat them as brothers. And I think that's really what Paul attempted to do here. And I think if we can live our lives in this manner, the sweet aftertaste in the mouth of others, once we take our departure, will be pronounced. And I think it will be good. I couldn't help but think of Abraham and Lot um, on this idea of being brothers. When Abraham and Lot's servants were striving with each other, it said over... The, the pasture of the day. Um, th- this was quite some friction, the way the Bible would make it sound. And finally, Abraham said a lot. He said, we're going to have to kind of get a little space between us here because the, the, the land can't hold us. And the reason he gave for trying to get this thing peacefully worked out is he said, we're brothers. We, we cannot allow this this pasture problem to cause us to uh, strive with each other. He said, we be brother. That's the way the King James puts it. And since we are brothers, let's not have strife. And so I'd like to leave that with us for our, a challenge for us. Let's be brothers. The second thing he says here, he goes, be perfect. I'm sorry, Warren, I couldn't help but think what you said here a few Sundays ago about the sign of uh, no perfect people allowed. Um, it seemed like the Corinthian church was certainly full of some pretty unperfect people. And um, uh, he goes, I, I, I want you to be perfect. Now, again, let's realize that we're reading this in King James English and not in the Greek that Paul would have addressed these people um, in. The NIV puts it like this, aim for perfection. At least have that as your goal. And the Revised Standard Version probably puts it the closest to its true meaning 
is mend your ways. Um, aim for perfection. Be perfect. Mend your ways. I guess take your pick. The Greek word means to complete thoroughly, to make repair or adjustment as needed. The word, that Greek word is used in some interesting ways in the New Testament. Uh, when Jesus saw uh, the sons of Zebedee mending their nets, that's the exact word that Paul uses here whenever he tells them to be perfect. Um, in Galatians 6, whenever it talks about restoring a brother, again, same word um, used here to be perfect. So you kind of get the idea of perhaps what Paul was saying. I think he was telling these people at Corinth that the trajectory you're on now, um, or that at least you were on, uh, was not going to lead these people closer to perfection. And he needed them to, to see that and to aim a different way. I think the lesson for us is, uh, to some degree, uh, some of us more, some of us less, but I think all of us to some degree tend to believe that we have a fairly good grasp on life and we are pretty much on the right trajectory and probably don't have a ton of need for um, a lot of input from anybody else. And I guess if we have that attitude, uh, we don't. Um, we don't really have a lot of room for input. But I think the bottom line is that if we're honest, all of us to some degree probably have some area in our life we don't quite see right. And we need a, a degree of help. We need a degree of uh, mending, as it were, as Paul tells these people. Can I be a person that is willing to be mended? Can I acknowledge that maybe I'm wrong? Can I maintain a teachable spirit? In the real world, um, mending isn't all that much fun. At least I haven't met anybody yet. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't really discussed this at length with a lot of people, but I don't think patching pants is the like high on people's priority list, something that they really enjoy. And I think that particular um, um, thing probably doesn't even happen that much anymore, perhaps. It's time-consuming. It's not fun. And... Um, I think the same thing goes here with mending in a spiritual way. It can be time-consuming. And many times it's not fun. And many times it won't happen overnight. And many times there needs to be some spiritual capital expended. But I think the gain is well worth the pain. So, let's take this as well. When all there is left of us is memory, will we leave behind a legacy that we are known for a person that strove for, per for perfection. That we were able to maintain a pliable spirit, graciously allowing ourselves to be molded and formed into perfection. Is that what we will be remembered for? I trust that we are striving for that and that that is something that we, we wish, to be, wish to be known for. The third thing here uh, that he says to them, he says, be of good comfort. And um, again, we're reading this in, uh, in, a, in our Bibles, and for whatever reason, our, our, the people that translated this particular book this way put those words in there. And I think there's a reason, because the, the root Greek word uh, shares the same um, part of the word that Jesus used in John whenever he talks about the comforter. 
those, this word here, comfort, and that word comforter, are somewhat the same. I mean, they're not somewhat the same. They're, they're the same word, just a bit of a different form. So I think that's why um, perhaps the translators translated it this way. However, that word, and I'm not going to say it because I, I can't, but that particular word also holds the, the idea of heeding to appeal. And so other translations um, take that translation. And they, and, they, and they word it that way. In other words, instead of be of good comfort, they'll say, heed my appeal. So I'd like to look at it both ways a little bit here. First of all, let's, let's look at it as heed my appeal. I wonder if Paul uh, at all hesitated to give that piece of advice to these people. Because remember, there's people in this church that will barely give him the time of day. And he's saying, heed my appeal. I mean, that, that was probably going out on a limb there a bit to request that of these people. Because uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, um, some of the people there at Corinth said, uh, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. I mean, what, what a commentary. What, a, what an accolade, right? And yet Paul says, I, I know you don't have much time for me. I know I'm contemptible. I, I know my letters really reek. I get that. But would you would you heed my appeal? Would you take time to at least consider what I had to say to you? The, in Proverbs 8.33, it says, Hear instruction and be wise and don't refuse it. Let's be people that can respond to an appeal. And let's be people that are known as people that make appeals. So in other words, an appeal is, it brings the idea that there is an offering and it's up to the person that it's being offered to whether he's going to accept that or not. And Paul knew he couldn't ram this stuff down the Corinthian people's throat. He had every, he had every, probably every bit of authority to do that. But he calls it an appeal. As I have um, been honest with my own inclinations and have observed others, I think it is common to man that we don't take appeals very uh, seriously and, and very easily, I think. Generally, people that are pretty wrapped up in ourselves. And I'd like to challenge us. Let's be people that are open to appeal. If we live that way, people that, as Paul put it in other places, that are easy to be entreated, I think this will lead to happy farewells. Now let's look at the uh, at the other side of this thing, or the other way of looking at it, the part of comfort. How do how how can we be of good comfort? I wonder if Paul, perhaps, as he reflected over his visits and his letters here to the Corinthian church, if he thought, you know what, I have uh, I have spoken fairly straightforwardly to these people, and there is a chance that they could take offense to what I have said. And so I think he's, he's perhaps saying in this, in this comfort part of things, um, you know, just, I don't want to say don't take it too seriously, but as you, as you heed my appeal, uh, take comfort in the fact that you can do this. I have confidence in you. Um, you know, don't, don't sweat it. Just do as I, do as I have appealed to you. You know, we all like to be comforted and feel comfortable. And sometimes we talk about being outside of our comfort zone and that being good for us. And, and I understand what that, you know, where a person's going with that whenever 
whenever that is said. But if we are if we are living continuously outside of our comfort zone, uh, that can really be fairly taxing too. I think, and maybe not even good for us uh, spiritually. We can come, become very stressed out. I like these words that Paul said in the beginning of his letter in Second Corinthians one three. He said, "Blessed be God." Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves be comforted of God. Now, you got to really think through that to, to see what Paul's saying there. But I think there's a few things he's saying. He's saying, first of all, we, you've all experienced the comfort of God. And that's a good thing. And because you have experienced that, you can help others to be comforted as well. You can empathize with others. So as we consider the many things in life that we can't control, and we accept those things, that, I think, is where we will find comfort. I think comfort, as Paul brings out here also, will many times come in a form of another human being. I really believe that. He, uh, he really gets on this in 1 Thessalonians uh, three times. He says he exhorts the people in Thessalonica to comfort each other. In chapter 4, he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. In chapter 5, he says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as I also ye do. And then a little later in chapter 5, he says, Now I exhort you, brothers, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded or timid would maybe be a better way to put that. So, are we comforters? No, not in the Holy Spirit way, but are we, are we people that live in the comfort of the blessing of God in the knowledge that God has placed us here? Um, are we comfortable with that? Are we always kind of, you know, not quite sure, kind of retching in our seats and and never can quite be comfortable with where God has called us or what what our experience is in life. And I, I'm sorry, Dan, I couldn't help think with this. Uh, I don't know how comfortable you are with the fact that you have to dig a well. I'm, I'm sure that didn't bring you great joy to find that out. But, uh, you know, God knew when you moved here that you were going to have to dig a well here um, in 2018, and he knew that, and uh, I think you can take comfort in that. And I, I had to comfort myself a little this morning. Um, uh, last week, we had a big flood that wiped out four acres of corn, and so it all dried off, and I got busy and replanted that this week. And guess what? It happened again last night. So all that worked for naught. And I just comforted myself that, you know what? I, apparently, the Lord does not want corn in those four acres. I, it's the only thing I can determine. And so I don't think I'm going to replant it. It's, it's just going to be the way it is, and, and uh, it will... It will take care of any pride I might have had in that cornfield by the road. Let's put it that way. It certainly will. All right. So bottom line, let's be people that can find comfort in life. So that when the farewells come, that we're even comfortable with that. All right, move on. The next one he says, be of one mind. I don't need to tell you that the the big problem at Corinth, and he starts right into that in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, is these people really lacked unity in their church. There was strife and division, and um, 
there was a lot of things left unaccomplished because of this lack of unity. And this theme of being like-minded is a subject that Paul addresses in Corinth and Rome and Ephesus and Philippi. Peter takes up the subject in 1 Peter and talks about it. it it's a big deal. And I think, I think the reason it's a big deal, Paul puts it well in Philippians 1. He says, let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else I'm absent, that I hear of your, your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Bottom line is, when the church does not have unity, the faith of the gospel is not propelled. It will not happen. And Paul addresses many issues to the church at Corinth that was reason for division and lack of unity. And I think Paul just yearned for these people to agree and come together on these issues. And he tried various times to show them how that in some of these issues, it's not a here nor there, but there would be such more, it would be so much more agreeable for the church if they could find common ground. You know, I, uh, I had to think of, um, of this little, um, I'm sure you've seen this already, this, um, this little triangle deal. And I've often, you often hear this, uh, and maybe at a wedding or, or something like that, where the theme is that, you know, as, as husband and wife, man and woman, move closer together, or move toward God, I should say, they move closer together. I, I don't know, I've heard this before. And I think the, the, the thing applies to church unity as well. I think the closer we get to God, the more we'll find that we have common ground and unity with one another. Did you ever stop to think about Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he said, my desire for the church, for, the, for my followers, is that they would be one as you and I are one, as God and Christ are one, so they would be one. You know, I've read over that sometimes, and I, and I almost smile. I'm like, really? That's possible? That we can be as closely one as God and Jesus? That's what Jesus prayed. That was his desire. I also had to think of Psalm 133, the uh, unity psalm. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, if you skip the next two verses, he kind of gives a little commentary on that. He goes, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. I think sometimes we underestimate the premium that God puts on unity of being of one mind. I don't know where God puts this in his priority list, but somehow when I look at Psalm 133 and I look at John 17, and I look at Paul's appeal to the various churches, I think we maybe underestimate the power that that has. So I think the, uh, the takeaway that we should have is that when we say goodbye in our lives, are we cultivating the virtue of unity? Can, we be said, can it be said of us that we were people that could easily find common ground with others, that we listened closely to other people's concerns. We gave people a fair hearing. And I really believe that that's the way we'll come to be of one mind as 
Paul so much desired the church here at Corinth. That's not exactly easy, and uh, it can be some tough work sometimes, but Paul acts like it can be done. And um, certainly we have uh, the blessing of God when we do that. All right, the last thing here, live in peace. And again, you almost smile and you say, is this possible? Peace seems so elusive, even for the people of God. Such a valuable and fragile gift, and it seems there's such a price attached to peace. I, for just because I could, I, I googled peace in, in my Bible program just to see, you know, what would come up. And, you know, I got that little flash, are you sure you want to do this because there's 431 direct verses here? And I'm like, yep, I want to do it. So I hit the yes button. And I thought, you know, as I peruse these verses that specifically have the uh, word peace in them, could I come up with a recipe for peace, for, for how we can live in peace and, and with peace and so on? And I'm going to read to you just a, a few verses, not near all 431, but I think if we take these verses seriously, they will put us well on our way to finding peace in life. When Zacharias prophesied of the work of Jesus in Luke 1, um, right after his tongue was loosed, by the way, he said, Jesus will give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and he will guide their feet in the way of peace. Paul says to the Roman church, he goes, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you take those two short verses together, you can conclude that outside of Jesus Christ, there is no peace. Isaiah 57 and 48 both say, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. It just doesn't get any simpler to that. So if you're under the sound of my voice this morning and you're not right with God, you have no peace. Bottom line, you don't. But if, if we do, if we do have peace with God, let's keep moving. Isaiah 26 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. All right, so step number two is our minds stayed on God. Is God the center of our focus and life and ambitions? Peace can be a process to maintain, and many times it's because we lose focus. Isaiah calls us to stay our minds on, on Christ, on, G, on God, rather. Psalm 119, 165 says this, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Do we love God's law? I believe a lot of the restlessness and lack of peace in the world comes from not obeying the law of God. Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life in peace. What's our pursuits? Are we carnal in our, in our thoughts and in our pursuits? Are we pursuing all the fun and games and pomp and circumstance that the world offers only to find that it is devoid of life and peace? I like the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 85.10. He says, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In other words, you can't take, you cannot separate the two. You want to have peace, you have to have righteousness. 
If you are righteous, there will be peace. Those two things are a package. Peter puts it this way. He that would see, he that would love life and see good days, let him seek peace and ensue it. I tell you, as I reflected, peace, I think the reason it eludes so many people is because generally it will not happen on its own. Generally, for peace to exist, somebody has got to take the guff, if you will. Somebody's got to back off and let life be unfair to them. I couldn't help but think of uh, the illustration of Joseph and his brothers. It says specifically that his brothers cannot speak peaceably to him. And I thought about that, and um, often we think of those brothers in that particular story as being, you know, had had a few problems, and certainly they did. But You know, if those brothers would have just said, you know what, and let's be kind of fair to the brothers. You know, if you had a a brother, the youngest brother, that's getting all the coats and the nice treatment and, you know, and you're out just taking care of the sheep, you might understand the the way they felt a bit, you know, dreaming these dreams and so on. You you can somewhat relate to it. But what if they just said, you know what, we get it. Joseph is... Our father's well-beloved because he has this particular mother. And, you know, it, it is, it's life. You know, we're just going to move on. It, it's life. Is it fair? Absolutely not. It's not fair. I'd like a coat of many collars too, but it, it's life. And they would have just willed themselves to speak peaceably and find the good points in their father and in this brother they couldn't stand. There would have been a lot of um, hard times for those brothers avoided. They lived with a lot of guilty conscience for many years simply because they were not willing to just back up and say, you know what, let it be what it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the way of peace. A much better illustration of peace is Isaac and his wells. We read about that um, as a family this week. Isaac's digging wells, Philistines filling them up or claiming them or whatever. Isaac just moves on and digs another well. And we read that and we say, what a great guy Isaac is. And that's true. Did you ever think about how much time it took Isaac to dig those wells, how much work that was? And he probably had the manpower to, to hustle those Philistines off. It would be my guess. Abraham seemed to be able to come up with it. But he didn't. He just said, all right, you can have that well. I'll move on and dig another one. And when he finally uh, found his well, he, uh, he named it. And he named it something about... Um, God has given me peace, something along those lines. So maybe you want to name your well there, damn you dig it. It's kind of a side thought. But uh, anyway, uh, a great illustration. And, you know, He took a lot of guff, but he took the way of peace. And I think that's the way we will often find it in our, in our lives. To find peace, we will have to go ahead and accept offense and even the right of retaliation. Paul implores these people. He says, live in peace. Make peace an attitude and an atmosphere that surrounds you. Make it an aroma that exudes from you. Jesus says, if we're peacemakers, we will be called the children of God. You know, when we think about, when you think about it, we serve the Prince of Peace, who promised to leave us peace when he left, that the world doesn't know anything about. He set up a kingdom of peace, and he told us to live in peace. Shouldn't we be peaceful people? So as we live in preparation...
for goodbyes, no matter whether they're temporal or final, will we be known as people who have yielded our lives, whom our lives, I should say, have yielded the peaceable fruits of righteousness? And as far as anybody we knew were concerned, it could be said of us that we lived peaceably with all men. Well, my final point, Paul promises a reward to these people if they could follow these few short instructions. The first one I see is he says, the God of love and peace will be with you. I find it interesting that the etymology of the word goodbye, and to explain the meaning of etymology, the root, the root if you get back to the root of where that word goodbye came from, it means God be with you. That's what it means. God be with you. So that's what, that's what Paul's saying. He says, farewell. And if you'll do these things, God will be with you. And he says, the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, I don't know which God you'd like to hang around, but God has many different attributes and ways of dealing with people. And the Bible is very clear that sometimes he deals with people in fierce anger. And it talks about his face being set against them and his wrath is hot. And you get this, this feeling of this God that just can barely contain himself. It's there. Paul says, you don't have to, that's, that does not have to be your experience. You can live with the God of love and peace. And he says, the God of love and peace will be with you if we will follow his ways. The second reward I see is in verse 13. He tells this church, he goes, all the saints salute you. I think another reward of living a life well, as Paul instructed here, is that we will have good rapport with the saints of God. The saints salute this church. That word salute means to embrace or have a very warm relationship. And I couldn't help but think of Paul's departure from the church there at Ephesus in chapter, or I'm sorry, in, in, in Acts, I'm not sure which chapter it is, where it says that, you know, you get, a, you get the feeling that, that that church at Ephesus did not want to see Paul leave. In fact, they implored him not to. And it says that they fell on his, wept, on his, on his neck and wept because they knew they wouldn't see his face anymore, ever again. He had good rapport with the church at Ephesus. And uh, Paul is telling the people here at Corinth, he goes, you know, they didn't deserve it probably, but he said, all the saints appreciate you. That's basically what he's saying. He said, you, you have the appreciation of the saints. And I think they could, they, could, they could get that appreciation because my sense is that this church at Corinth did indeed follow Paul's um, Paul's input here. Follow these short things we talked about today. So that concludes what I have to talk about here this morning. And I would just like to, at, uh, at this time, just pronounce the, the benediction here that's given in verse 14, especially to the Sensenich family. It goes like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.